Thanks for being a part of the release of our new podcast, Common Grace. This podcast is meant to be a place where we can gain wisdom from individuals' perspectives, ask questions, and maybe even disagree as we learn together. You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. Ever wonder where the word Caucasian came from? Or how racial and ethnic privileges affected many of our favorite Bible characters? Or maybe you recoil and get uncomfortable when people bring up systemic racism. In this episode, George interviews Dominique Gilliard and explores fresh angles on how we can be a catalyst for racial reconciliation and diversity. Dominique serves as a director of racial righteousness and reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church. And he's also the author of Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. This interview has helped shape some new ideas where it comes to racial reconciliation for me. And I hope you enjoy Dominique's fresh perspective just as much as I did. Well, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. We're so happy to have Dominique and you are doing incredible work. You've been, a, like we were talking earlier, I feel like you have both a prophetic and pastoral voice and and you are holding a lot of tensions and you're also, I think, articulating kingdom realities and kingdom truths in the midst of a lot of tension in our culture. I'm so grateful to have you on. And um, I just want to jump in. Uh, would you mind just sharing maybe a little bit about yourself and maybe your journey with racial reconciliation? Yeah, well, first, I'm just honored to be on with you and your community. But yeah, I'm from the metro Atlanta area. Uh, grew up in the uh, shadows of Dr. King, which really ended up being profoundly informative for my life. Uh, I have a father who worked for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for a decade, which is an organization that Dr. King founded during the Civil Rights Movement. And I have a mom who is a superintendent in our denomination, uh, which in other denominations kind of functions like a bishop. And so she is the pastoral leader over the southeastern region of the Evangelical Covenant Church. So I jokingly say that God took the best virtues of their call and combined it into a call upon my life, uh, racial justice and discipleship. And that's really um, been my life's call. And I think in large part, due to the legacy and witness of Dr. King. And so uh, because of that, there were, within my own formation, there was never really this kind of bifurcation, the splitting of uh, evangelism and justice, right belief and right action. The gospel was always something that unified those two things. The cross has two dimensions. It has the vertical and the horizontal. When we're just in right relationship with God and unaligned with our neighbor, that's not the good news of Jesus Christ. And when we're aligned rightly with our neighbor, but not with God, again, that's not the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is only manifested when we are in right relationship with both God and neighbor. And so that's been something that has really been instructive for me as I've understood what is the role of the church in being a presence of transformation and a signpost of the love, mercy, and justice of Jesus Christ in the midst of a nation where racial division abounds. What is the role of the church when we're called to be ambassadors of reconciliation, when we're called to be co-laborers with Christ, when we are the hands and feet of Christ in the midst of history and legacies and missteps by the church that have been more complicit with racism than they have active against racism. And I just really 
have seen the gospel as something that is the solution to that brokenness, to that division. But we have to have the integrity and the fortitude to go to those difficult places and spaces to reveal the goodness of Christ. And so that's really kind of been a lot of kind of how this call is kind of synchronized in my life. And uh, it's moved from growing up in the South and having my first racial encounter at the age of six at an all-white private Christian school, where the only other person of color was my older brother, to, uh, you know, being a star baseball player, which is a majority white sport and the higher and the better you get, the wider it got to the point. And so I was on the level where I ended up getting a scholarship to go play baseball. And so some of the racial experiences I had in that culture, in those contexts were profoundly gruesome. And so I think there was always this awareness within me of the fact that that was antithetical to the gospel and that Jesus was imploring the body to to bear witness to something different. And so all those things were informative for me. I went through those experiences. I ended up going to graduate school in East at East Tennessee State University, which is in the Appalachian Mountains region. So I go from Atlanta to the Appalachian Mountains uh, to do a master's in U.S. history with a focus on race, gender, and class. Then from there, go to Chicago for seminary, uh, do an MDiv with the focus on uh, urban ministry uh, and reconciliation. And then from there, go out and do pastoral ministry in Oakland, California for five and a half years before coming back to Chicago uh, for this role. So not only have I been in many different parts of the country. Uh, I've been uh, in urban hubs. I've been in kind of more rural contexts. I've been in place where I was the majority and the extreme minority. And I think all of those experiences have really formed and shaped God's call on my life. And the Appalachians, which is like its whole, its whole own category. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That is amazing. Why do you think it's so important to have a more holistic vision of the gospel of, you know, like you talked, you know, about having, you know, two wings, you know, uh, of the, of this, of like a plane. Why is it so important? Like, I think David Bosch was said, said the gospel is alerting people to the, to the kingdom of God, the reality of the kingdom of God and the King through announcement and demonstration. Why are, why are bringing those together so important? Yeah, proclamation and demonstration is the only framework for authentic manifestation of the gospel. We see that through Jesus. Jesus didn't just come in and proclaim good words. He actually went out and lived them out. And as Christians, Jesus is the model. And so, but even, you know, when we take seriously John the Baptist's witness, when John was paving the way for Jesus, uh, he was very intentional about the proclamation and demonstration. He was even intentional about helping us to understand that, you know, Missteps are a part of life, but when we misstep, repentance is essential for us getting realigned with both God and with neighbor. And I love the way that John talks about repentance, uh, where he talks about that there should be fruit in keeping with repentance. And I think in so many of our congregations, we've watered down repentance to just be or oral confession. And there is no keeping with. And because of the lack of keeping with, oftentimes there's a lack of fruit in our repentance. 
you know, I had a mentor who always used to say, we're saved so that. And it's salvation is not just about us and God and this kind of get out of hell free card, which unfortunately we've been kind of indoctrinated into a discipleship that has clung to that for far too long. But Dominique, wouldn't that be so nice to be able to just have a get out of hell free <laughs> card and then we can do whatever we want? That is what we want, That, but that's not what we need. Um, Amen. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, the beauty of the gospel is that it's an invitation to participation. Uh, we have an invitation from the creator to come alongside of and to help rectify the brokenness that is before us and to point people who are in despair and hopelessness and spirals of shame towards a liberator who wants to give them give them a vision for the missional purpose that God has for their life. Um, one of the things that I get to do, um, and I won't sp spend a ton of time on this, but I get a chance to uh, teach in a program at North Park Theological Seminary where we uh, are inside of a maximum security prison and we are offering master's level education to incarcerated men. And in this program, we are making disciples who are making disciples behind bars. And the focus of the program is conflict de-escalation in conflict-ridden spaces. And so you've got men who, some of which who have created, I mean, who've committed, you know, grotesque offenses, who for a long time lived as if uh, their life was forever defined by the worst thing they've ever done. And through this program, we get to remind them that nothing we can do can separate us from the love of our Savior. And that God, in spite of your past, still has a desire to be in relationship with you and a missional purpose for your life. And so like, that's why the good news has to be proclamation and demonstration because you can tell somebody that but until they see you living that out until they see you engaging with them as if that is true there is going to be this disbelief um there is going to be like oh those are very nice words but you know i don't feel that to be true and i think part of what the demonstration is is that you know we're called to be people who live as if we know resurrection is true in the midst of crucifying realities and so i think we have to live in the now and the not yet kind of bearing witness to the truths of the inbreaking kingdom of god in a world that subscribes to other logics and other uh, modalities and so i think that's why the demonstration piece is so crucial because scripture finally i'll just land with this scripture tells us that the world will come to know that we are jesus's disciples by how we love one another it doesn't say by what we say what we proclaim it talks about by how we choose to love one another and i believe that a hallmark of christianity is a choice to choose sacrificial love in a selfish culture wow yeah, the, the, the kingdom of God is not just a kingdom of words, but of power and righteousness. Um, so if someone were to say to you, man, just just preach the word, brother, um, you would point to Jesus that he not only taught the word, but he actually embodied it. You look at even de declaration of his ministry in Luke chapter four, you can look in uh, Matthew 25, you just you just see the the works of his goodness and kingdom in his life. This is this kind of leads to a question I had for you. There's some things I, I might want to come back to 
And with what you just said, we probably could just end the interview (laughs) and leave it. It was so good. Dominique, I just so appreciate, again, your voice and perspective. But if if we're talking about the kingdom of God and the gospel, the holistic gospel, that it, it needs to speak more than to just the individual as well, but to the community, because it's a it's a it's a kingdom that's that's breaking in all around us. God's kingdom isn't excluded from any aspect of our world. So, if that's true, would you mind just talking to me uh, out of your experience, personal experience and your um, your background and expertise? about systemic racism because we we have people we have viewers who are watching that are exploring faith in Jesus new to faith and have been following Jesus a long time and you know some of them you know might not even come from a background that knows or believes that you know systemic racism is a reality so maybe you could speak to that yeah so i think one of the ways in which we kind of trip ourselves up in the church in regards to this conversation is we know the passage that tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self. But I think we've actually translated that passage as God was in Christ reconciling broken people to God. But it says the world and scripture is intentional about the language embedded within it. And so we have to understand that the world includes not just broken people, but also broken systems and structures. And God is in the process of redeeming and restoring all that is broken to God's original intent. And so when we look at scripture, scripture repeatedly addresses broken systems and structures. I mean, the classic text that I always go to for the easiest illustration is Exodus 1, 6 through 2, 10. Uh, It's the story of Moses being born into the world. And Moses is born into an empire, an Egyptian empire as a Hebrew baby, and says that ultimately his life is supposed to be put to death upon being born just because of his ethnic identity. The Egyptian empire has created great wealth and prosperity, but it's all dependent upon the exploitation, subjugation, and dehumanization of Hebrew people. And the text even says, because of Pharaoh's fear that one day that the Hebrews might realize how numerous they are, that they might turn against them, he intensifies their oppression. And so we see in this instance, a lot of times we want to say, well, the problem is just a personal sin problem. But when individuals uh, live in unrepented sin and they have positions of power, their systemic sin flows over out of themselves into the systems and structures that they're tasked with stewarding. And those systems and structures become corrupted and contaminated in ways that dehumanize people and oppose the will of God. And so we have to take systemic sin seriously and corporate responsibility seriously, because when we as the people of God see the image of God being marred in our neighbors, we have an ethical responsibility to step up, speak up, and show up to demonstrate that this is not the will of God and that God has something else in mind and that the spirit will not be complacent in the midst of the oppression that is being manifested against our neighbor. So kind of taking on a little bit of the liberating mantle of Moses, his example of speaking power or speaking truth to power, I should say, Before we move from the Egypt and and the system of Egypt, individual and systemic evil that we're talking about, and then and then go to our our day and age in our world, could you speak to maybe the listener 
who struggles with the idea of racial disparity and privilege. If they're a Christian, they might be able to say, hey, the, the Egyptians you know, had Egyptian privilege and, and Moses experienced that when he was raised with all of the privilege of being a prince in Egypt before he it was, no, you know, before he was uh, treated and identified with the, with the Hebrews. But that same person might struggle um, identifying disparity and privilege in our own uh, setting. So maybe could you speak to that? What, what a lot of people think of uh, white privilege is white guilt. Could you just speak to that from a biblical and, and I think truthful perspective? Yeah, so I'll give you another scripture that kind of gives us a parallel to this. So in Acts 16, we see the account of Paul and Silas who are ultimately arrested because they're charged with throwing the city into uproar because they stopped demon-possessed women from being exploited for ill-gotten ends. And then they're taken before a criminal justice system that's more in love with money than it is with justice. And they are publicly beaten, stripped naked, and not even given a trial before they're incarcerated. Then after they're falsely incarcerated, the text says, oh, well, let me also mention, in the midst of the mock trial, they are false identified as being Jews and when they are actually Roman citizens. And so because of the fact that they are accused of being Jews, the persecution transpires and no one blinks an eye. But in the midst of their incarceration, the judicial authorities actually realize that they're Roman citizens. And the text says when they realized they were Roman citizens, that's when they sent them in to release them. And they wanted to release them at the crack of dawn so there was no accountability there. That is a perfect manifestation of what privilege is. The fact that they were Jews, they could be mistreated and nobody blinked an eye. But as soon as somebody recognized that they were Roman citizens, their their treatment categorically changed. The fact that some people are respected by the criminal justice system, by systems and structures, and are treated with more dignity than others, that's what we're talking about when we're trying to talk about racial or ethnic privilege. And what people have to understand is like scripture consistently highlights that this is a real thing. This is not some newfangled social agenda. This is something that is true and the word of God affirms it over and over and over again. So when we think about privilege and our modern context or this whole conversation about uh, racism or systemic sin, You know, when we look at the origins of our nation, you know, our indigenous sisters and brothers and Declaration of Independence are referred to as merciless Indian savages. African-Americans were counted as three-fifths of a person, were ultimately legally constituted as property that could be sold and therefore had no rights. We have a history where the Chinese ultimately were excluded from this country because they were becoming too much competition for white men on the West Coast during the gold rush. And so we construct a piece of legislation for the only time in our nation's history that says we're going to exclude an entire people group and we're going to exclude them from immigrating into our country just because of their ethnic identity. That piece of legislation initially was supposed to last for 10 years, but it gets expanded to 60 years. We have the Japanese internment camps where Japanese individuals at that time 
that the federal piece of legislation was passed down, there were 127,000 people of Japanese ancestry in our nation. We rounded up 120,000 men, women, and children and forced them into incarceration without any trials, without due process for multiple years. And at the end of the internment camp, not one single person was found guilty of any criminal activity. And of the 120,000 people who were rounded up, 60% of them were U.S. citizens. So how much of their property was returned? Oh, very small percentage. So when we talk about generational wealth and racial wealth gaps, when we don't factor in questions like what you just asked appropriately, uh, we're missing part of the puzzle. So when we when we have these conversations about racial privilege, I think where people get tripped up a lot of times is with the whole notion of like when we talk about whiteness or deconstruction of whiteness, people perceive that wrongly as us being against white people. Scripture is explicitly clear, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And what we're trying to help people to understand is that whiteness functions in our world as a power and a principality that divides us and destroys the communion that God desired us to have with one another. When we talk about whiteness, we're talking about a legal construction that says that it means something categorically different to be identified as white than it does to be identified as a person of color in this country. And that's been true legislatively, economically, educationally, vocationally. So this is something that we can tangibly point to in regards to its evolution. There were a couple of cases that were really instrumental to this reality that happened in regards to Asian Americans who were trying to legally be classified as white in this country because white individuals were the one who were having access to the full benefits of citizenship. And so in this regard, these two cases become really two critical cases for understanding the legal construction of whiteness. So in 1922, you have a case called Ozawa versus the US. And Ozawa was a Japanese born uh, individual who immigrated to the US. He was a businessman. He becomes a Christian. He raises his family in very patriotic ways. And he ultimately tries to apply to be, to say that he's white because he wants to get some of the benefits, some of the benefits he's restricted from as a citizen. And ultimately he's told that he can't be classified, he can't become a U.S. citizen because he's not white. Three months later, there's another case that comes from a South Asian uh, named Bagat Sinthin. And he is from a region of the country that the word Caucasoid actually comes from. And so the first guy, uh, Zawa, is told that he can't be a U.S. citizen because he's not white. Well, then learns from that and says, well, I can apply to be a U.S. citizen because I'm actually from the region where the term Caucasian comes from. So you can't get any more white than this. And so he applies and he's denied citizenship. And the reason why he's denied citizenship is because they said that he might be from the Caucasoid Mountains, but any, any person with common sense can tell that he's not white. And let me read what the uh, Chief Justice said. 
uh, about the case. It says, it may be true that blonde Scandinavians and the brown Hindu have a common ancestor in the dim reaches of antiquity, but the average person knows perfectly well that there are unmistakable and profound differences between them today. Three months ago, you can't be a citizen because you're not white. Then you come from the region which where Caucasoid comes from, where Caucasian is the derivative term for white people, and you can't be a U.S. citizen even though you come from there because while you might be from that region, you're not white. And so whiteness becomes this circular logic where it never has to say what it is, but it always gets to say what it isn't. And it becomes this exclusionary legal term that actually prohibits individuals from of color from having equitable access to the vote, to education, to vocation, to housing. And so when we're trying to get after these conversations about racism and systemic sin and even racial privilege, um, these aren't conversations that are aimed at demonizing white individuals or things that are, you know, oppositional to white people. It is trying to help us to have more clarity around the systemic sin that has created the racial disparities in our country that continue to resurface and that continue to divide the people of God from experiencing the communion that God always desired us to share with one another. And one of the themes I'm I'm hearing, this is uh, Dominique, thank you for sharing. This is so good, so helpful. And I've and the concrete examples. You know, I mean, they, these are things that have been written into law. Yeah. You, you know, um, and the the logic, like you're saying, is circular. It's, uh, it's a logic that's trying to prove superiority. But when you stand back and look at it from the light of God's grace and the image of God in people, you see the, the in, in an effort to create a logic of superiority, that it's a logic of of really power and, and mad- madness. This is unhealthy. And it is antithetical to the very beginning of scripture. When Genesis 127, we're told that we are all created equitably in the image of God. What racism says is that that's not true, that there is a sliding scale of humanity where some people are made more in the image of God and other people are made less. And therefore, we can create systems and structures to civilize, heathenize, or do whatever we have to do to help those people who are less endowed with God's image to get up to our level. Like, that's just it's oppositional to the gospel in every way, shape, or form. And I want to give you just one more tangible example of kind of what we've been talking about in regards to systemic sin. So right after the war, we had the evolution of the GI Bill, and we get the creation of the suburbs. Well, what people need to understand about the creation of the suburbs is that of the $120 billion worth of new housing subsidized by the federal government between 19 1934 and 1962, less than 2% of that money went to non-white families. Non-white families were locked out of home ownership just as white families were getting subsidized access to it. Dominic, could you say that percentage one more time and read that last part again? That was, that's mind-blowing. Yeah. Of the $120 billion worth of new housing subsidized by the federal government between 1934 and 1962, less than 2% of that money went to non-white families. Non-white families were locked out of home ownership just as white families were subsidized as they got exclusive access to it. 
so these are the things that we're trying to bring to to the surface and to really lay before the church as something that we have to remember, something that we have to lament, something that we have to confess, and something that we have to turn away from if we're really going to be in right relationship with both God and neighbor. You've been listening to Common Grace, a Whitewater Church podcast. To learn more about us, visit us online at whitewaterchurch.org or reach out to info at whitewaterchurch.org. Thanks for listening.